In the landscape of helping students identify and apply to colleges, there are people like me who are independent counselors, but there are many, many more school-based counselors, both in public schools and in private or independent schools. And while school-based counselors often counsel students about many aspects of their life, my guest today represents the group of folks at said independent schools whose primary job is the college counseling. And we have a lot to talk about regarding how our profession may have changed over the years, the collegiality between these constituencies trying to help students, the unique or not unique concerns of students at independent schools, and while we're at it, how we reckon with the fact that the kind of help we provide is the kind of thing that typically only those who can afford it can receive. Her name is Emmy Harward, and she is the Executive Director of the Association of College Counselors and Independent Schools, or ACCESS. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush. Happy New Year. I'm Davin Sweeney, a college counselor, or more specifically, and apropos of today's conversation, I am an independent educational consultant at CollegeWise, and today I spent some time talking to a good friend of mine about the business, work, and career of counseling students through the college application experience. Shout out to Matt Hyde, Dean of Admissions at Lafayette, who recently suggested we retire the term process and go with experience. We'll see if it sticks. I suggest we replace process with Thunderdome. But I don't know if it's that might be too uh, outdated a reference. Follow me on Twitter at CrushPod. Send me an email at CrushPod at gmail.com. Subscribe, rate the show on iTunes, all that stuff, please. So this one might be a smidge insider baseball-y for some, but the good news is that I think that that's you guys. You guys are uh, that, that, that's that's you. You're baseballers. You want the inside stuff. You want to be brushed back from the plate. You want the heat. That's not that's not what inside baseball refers to. I know that. I don't care. Baseball's boring. It is. Anyways, I think this is a good one. Perhaps if you're new in the profession and you're wondering where all this can take you, specifically the directions you can go when it comes to working with kids. And I think there's a lot here to inform your decision making. Emmy even helps me reckon with my own uh, decision to switch gears from working as a college admissions counselor to going independent, as they say. So what is AXIS? As they put it, AXIS is a national membership organization providing support, shared knowledge, and professional development programming for college counselors based in independent or non-public schools across the country and internationally. AXIS counts nearly 600 schools as members, represented by over 1,700 counselors and office assistants working to support the students in their care. Emmy spends her time in airports, schools, and her home base of beautiful San Diego, California. And on this day, she was in New York, and she and I talked in a conference room in the college-wise New York City World Headquarters at WeWork on 49th Street in Manhattan. Um, what brings you to town? College board meeting. We're not recording yet, are we? We totally are. Yeah. I mean, I, I just sort of press start and then, you know, I always sort of see where what happens. Where it takes us. Yeah. Where it takes us. I am in town uh, for a college board meeting of the Counselor Community Advisory Group, uh, which is not a standard kind of counselor advisory board group, if there is such a thing. There are certainly school counselors on it, but there are, uh, there's a few school principals there's a university president. There are folks who run CBOs and um, work with 
certainly underrepresented, under-resourced populations within uh, the post-secondary transition. And um, folks from ASCA and NACAC and uh, a whole bunch of college board folks come and talk to us and, and take our feedback. So, What are you going to tell them? Um, I am going to listen, and then uh, I had a chance actually at CollegeBorg Forum in Dallas to offer some feedback to Jeremy Singer, who is maybe COO, I'm not sure his title, I think he's a muck, technically, muck. technically the number two of College Board, um, and so I had 15 minutes that became 30 uh, with him at Forum. Um, and most of the things that I offered had more to do with access and, uh, and equity rather than things that might be stereotypically thought of as independent school kid concerns. Mm -hmm. So one other thing that I've also just has just been brought to my attention is that for an organization that represents a disproportionate number of schools, um, the representation and the leadership of College Board, of their trustees, and on uh, committees, uh, especially in leadership and chair positions, is, is disproportionately the college side, which I'm curious if that's a chicken and egg thing, if they've tried to get more school people and they don't have the time to be able to devote that is demanded, or, uh, and so as a result, they don't end up asking people to do it. Yeah, I don't know. It was interesting. I talked to Annie Resnick Week, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, you mentioned that. I was looking for that to be and she also, to go live. Um, the coalition board is also almost exclusively college side folks. So, sure. you know, it's interesting. I mean, you represent an organization of college counselors. Right. That are in independent schools. Right. A small subset of a small subset. I believe, therefore, I think, I think just in doing that right there, I managed to say all the words in the acronym ACCESS. You did. The Association of College Counselors and Independent Schools. Right. Uh, but I mean, do you feel like the, you know, we'll get into the matter, the, the, you know, degree which independent schools might have unique concerns, but as far as college counseling is concerned, do you feel like the voice of the college counselor is accurately represented in the process, given that you just told me that, you know, college board doesn't seem to have much in the way of school counselors involved in their, you know, decision-making process and coalition application and so on and so forth. I don't know that there is anything such as the voice of college counselors. I think that there need to be certainly more access points for those conversations. I think that this is a sidestep answer to your question. I think that there was a period of time when um, you only get like three was, of those okay, okay, per interview. Okay. I think there's a period of time when it was relatively easy for, um, as you have recently done, as I did 15 some years ago. For folks to get to maybe middle management, uh, maybe not quite that far in admissions, mm -hmm. and uh, then make a sidestep to work, typically in an independent school, because in order to be a school counselor, it's a much more substantial job. You need a credential. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the social-emotional counseling skill set that um, requires a level of skill set. I certainly don't... Uh, I can't consistently possess on a daily basis. So I, I think that there were many folks uh, who found it relatively easy uh, to, well, easy relatively speaking, to make that move from admissions into college counseling because those were more readily connected skill sets as you took from one to, to the other. You're still working um, 
working directly with students and parents, you have a senseless selectivity of the pool, you have to get adjusted to school culture and, and community and, and that type of thing and the, the day-to-day and a broader range of students with whom to work. The, the shift that I've seen now is that the um, rather than being parallel tracks, I think those tracks have diverged more and so you have deans and directors trying to make the leap now because they didn't get into this to be beholden to uh, metrics and uh, net revenue. Uh, and making that move to school-based counseling uh, now requires more of those social-emotional counseling skills, requires counseling the whole family and its parent management at times. And for those who are working with under-resourced and underrepresented populations, there's a whole additional host of factors involved, especially if you're working for an organization that struggles with resources as well. So. I think that the disconnect between what admission dean and directors and the college board and potentially the common application and the coalition and NACAC would be an obvious next partner in that, but I don't think that's true considering NACAC does have school counselors uh, often in leadership positions and, mm-hmm. and intentionally so. Um, I think that the, the feedback loop isn't as um, isn't as consistent, isn't as well uh, in well put together as as it might have been, as the understanding of each other's jobs has mm-hmm. changed. And I, of course, arrogantly sit here and say, "Well, I know what a job of admissions director is. It's my job to know that to be better equipped to understand what they're doing." I don't think they know what school counselors and college counselors on the ground are dealing with as much. And uh, I would love to be wrong about that, but I think the power dynamic in the in the the work that in the field that we're in is the admissions folks are the deciders to harken back to a word that doesn't exist. The, they're <laughs> the decision makers in the process, and so therefore there's a there's a power dynamic that's inherent in some of the work that we do, and that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. You yourself switched over. I did at some point. You made this this leap. Across the desk, which, by the way, can we come up with a new way of, can we stop, can we figure out a way to not say other side my, of the desk my, or your side my of the eternal, desk? My eternal work wife, Marie Bigham, um, has uh, brought me around and many others around to saying um, that it sounds oppositional if we are talking about two sides of the desk and there's so many more partners um, the uh, the counseling and access side of the desk would get really crowded uh, with all of the constituents that are there. And so she's brought me around to saying it's really uh, seats around a table, which also sounds much more collaborative. So you switched seats there you go. at the table. See, see? You worked at Doesn't Vanderbilt. Work? I did. One of these highly selective joints. Not as highly selective in, in uh, the... Fall of 2001 when I left, but yes. Okay, and then you moved to work for um, for an independent school doing counseling exactly in the fashion that you. I did. I was at a school called Hampton Roads Academy in Newport News, Virginia, which is close to where I grew up in Williamsburg, Virginia, and then missed being in a city, and so uh, moved. Ended up in San Diego, working at the Bishop School in La Jolla, California. And you brought a little bit of the San Diego with you today. I did. It's absolutely gorgeous and 48 and and rainy in New York today. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. But I got my Dunkin'. Okay. Uh, Some people people would get Starbucks for their coffee of choice. I I think in terms of, you know, incidence of 
objects in New York City, um, like on the list, like wherever manhole covers are, like Dunkin' Donuts and then Subway. I like that. So you know, I'm glad you were able to find one. I got my Dunkin' in in a Subway, so that um, Subway like a Subway station, <laughs> okay. not not a Subway sandwich. Oh, though. how how iconic! How so tell me more about your actual role now? Then you know, as you worked sure. as a school counselor for a long time, what is what is your role now? Which is actually a new role. Uh, Almost the end of two years. Yeah, relatively speaking. Sure. Axis was uh, founded in a very grassroots way, uh, probably approaching 12 years ago now, with a uh, group of colleagues who were on a counselor tour and started having that conversation on what's some of the best professional development you've ever had. And at that period of time, um, NACAC session proposal guidelines seemed to indicate a desire to appeal to all constituent groups within a single session, which became kind of frustrating to be able to do. And I think there was a perception that it diluted the message that any one presenter was trying to communicate. And I've talked to folks at NACAC and they don't entirely disagree on that So for those who are not, The National Association for College Admission Counseling. Right. And so you're talking about session proposal guidelines being, you know, needing to have, you know, this type of person, this type of person, this type of person. I'm nodding. Yes. To be. Indeed. Indeed. And let's. Right. And so if a proposal was in about, um, you know, having uh, board reports that, uh, represent your college counseling office mission. There aren't many, if any, public school counselors or even admissions uh, officers, typically, who are putting together um, a board report in that in that way. And so it just didn't make sense. And at the same time, and I think more relevantly, the um, National Association for Independent Schools, or NAIS, was doing some refocusing and decided rather than focusing on constituent group services within independent schools. They were going to uh, work on themes as they supported boards uh, and heads of school. And so the one program they'd had that had been very successful and well run for college counselors and independent schools was ended. And so there seemed to be this gap and there was a desire to um, fill that gap with some specific programming in much the way that um, ACRO does, and if I remembered what that acronym stood for, I would I would say it, but ACRO does for admission officers. I think that's the last two letters at least. American Association of Collegiate Registrars and Admission Officers. Cool. Maybe. I may have made up some of those letters. Um, American School Counseling Association and, and their state and regional counseling associations. Um, organizations that work, uh, NPEA that works uh, representing CBOs and that independent schools and colleges are members of. So, so it wasn't it wasn't a new idea to have this kind of constituent representation under the umbrella of other organizations, but because of who we were as independent schools, I think there was a perception that it was this elitist opportunity to pull away. Um, we require that schools be members of NACAC and NAIS, and we are about to roll out an international school associate member option where instead of NAIS membership, which they don't allow, Um, Schools need to be a member of the Council of International Schools and be not-for-profit. We may look at some other membership categories as well in the future, but the the goal was to supplement the professional development opportunities that already existed for folks working in independent schools, folks working with kids, period, in the college counseling and post-secondary transition area. And so in March 2007, uh, AXIS was incorporated 
and uh, was fully volunteer run with some part-time administrative support for uh, for the first almost 10 years of its existence. Um, I was the third volunteer executive director that the organization had um, and helped to get the organization in a position both financially and structurally where we could hire a full-time executive director. And I knew pretty quickly that that was the job that I wanted and um, had that opportunity and started full-time January 1, 2017. So what occupies your time? What are some of these unique concerns that independent school college counselors have that maybe weren't being represented by some of the other professional groups? Some of it is just doing a deep dive into things like um, the higher expectation of return on investment of families who are literally paying not just with their property taxes, but also with tuition dollars for their students' uh, tuition. And so therefore, especially over the last 10 years, uh, have a much greater expectation of services. But also I think the, and, and this isn't unique to independent school students, but the stress inherent in the uh, college admission process and the pressure that students may place upon themselves, mm-hmm. that well-intentioned parents may place upon them, mm-hmm. that sometimes independent schools create and and nurture whether they want to or not. And and looking at some of those, um, those opportunities, those responsibilities mm-hmm. I think, that we have to be able to serve students and, and counselors. And part of it is it's just such a different job than all of the additional responsibilities that a professional school counselor has on their plate doing just the college counseling piece and having the luxury of a smaller caseload as well. What are the what are some of the unique sorts of anxieties that the students are grappling with at, at independent schools if if they are in fact unique? I don't know that they are and that's one of my pet peeve words. I think it's a binary binary state so thank you for using it correctly. Um, I, I, I think kids are kids, no matter what school environment they're in. I think now they're at a point where social media shows all of the happy days and none of the not happy days. And uh, there's always the, you know, the deficit thinking, I think, that students engage in and what they don't have. The flip side of that is that the downside of being in a smaller, typically independent school is that um, your your frame of reference is smaller as well. And you may be the top kid in your class, but that may give you an unrealistic sense of your place in an overall applicant pool yeah. for, for a college. You could be the best um, soccer player at your school, but depending upon who else your school plays against, that may not necessarily uh, put you in position to get recruited by uh, you know to be in order to play in college. So I, I think it's a um, you know it's a double-edged sword, and and I think all kids have um, have needs and opportunities. I don't think independent school kids are 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 special in any way. I just think it's a different job. Well, I think that one of the you know one of the things that you and I bond over is the sort of uh, the problem that prestige sort of creates in the, uh, in the, in the landscape out there, you know, your, uh, membership schools really sort of that's prestige is sort of the currency there. Many of them. That is true. And, um, to the extent that, you know, people that come from environments like those and then go on to highly selective 
uh, colleges and perhaps even uh, journalism programs at those highly selective colleges and then go on to write about the college process are really writing about a very narrow band of experience uh, that influences everybody's thinking about sure. this. Sure. Um, so I guess, how do you feel that you are able to or are you able to kind of grapple with that idea? Um, is it something that, you know, as a, a facilitator of conversations around what can we do to change this and make it a more healthy landscape for kids like what do you feel like you can do to even impact that issue of you know prestige having such currency uh in that landscape i think that it's part of the responsibility of any of us who are in positions of privilege which most folks who work with independent schools are to it's responsibility to amplify the voices of those who are not able to be um, traveling to professional conferences to be asked to serve on a college board committee, to be recording a podcast, in uh, you know, to be released at a period of time, to have the um, time and to have a board who knows that this is part of my job to do and to have these conversations and be in these rooms. I think that there's a responsibility to um, not just speak about the needs of independent school students but also to talk about some of the needs of students and counselors more more broadly because um, how selfish would it be to only be promoting the needs of, of some students? I don't think college counselors, uh, no matter where they are, get together, school counselors, and, and try to keep, uh, you know, any kind of secrets as to counsel they might have offered to a student. There's a, um, for better or for worse, there's a 15,000 plus member Facebook group of folks who are very frequently offering um, counsel, um, some of it better than, than others, uh, to, to colleagues. And so I think, I think that it's a very collaborative um, collegial space. And so part of our responsibility is to, again, help, help colleagues as they help students and to speak truth to power if we have the opportunity. Um, as, you know, as I had a conversation with, uh, you know, a gentleman with the college board uh, last month, um, one of the biggest things that I brought up was access to fee waivers. And there's an idea and a proclamation on the part of the college board on what they want and how that's supposed to happen. And something is going wrong between that and actual implementation and counselors actually being able to access these, especially for students who took a school day SAT where at the district level, they may not have checked the right box for fee waiver um, benefits to ripple into the rest of their testing career. So, so I think those are some of the things that um, that I see as a responsibility. Um, I'm trying to get back to your original question to remember if I've come anywhere close to answering it. But I, you know, I think I think that that one of the things that we need um, we need to do as leaders, whether by by title or by opportunity in in this work, is to create more opportunities for folks to talk to each other, to um, figure out ways that we can have counselors and uh, deans and directors in the same room to be able to talk about what it is that we do. 
um, as an organization, Access is doing strategic plan implementation right now. And so we're, we're actually in the, the final stages of, um, of crafting our strategic plan initiatives. And so as we go forward with that, some of the conversations have been create more opportunities to, um, to engage deans and directors in conversation about the landscape. And uh, there may be folks that choose to talk about what's going on in their individual schools. I think there are many that would also choose to talk about things that are that are going on on the ground with students and schools. And and the more that we can get that message out broadly and have that shared with those who are writing the articles in national publications and um, you know, folks who may write books about the process, the the more that we may be able to shift the demand to hear only about a small subset of the most highly selective schools, which I think the folks who write those articles and those books feel is the way to sell, uh, I was about to say papers, but that's not a thing anymore, really. Clicks. Content, clicks and, right. yeah, clicks and, clicks and books and downloads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think everybody that I've generally, you know, that I consort with that works in independent school college counseling, you know, almost seem to work in spite of the demands of the community (laughs) that they teach, which is to say, you know, that they're on the same page here, which is to say they would love it if, you know, people would start to think a little bit more about schools that are a little further down the U.S. News and World Report list. Um, But there is really no kind of getting away from it, though, uh, at a certain point, you know, perhaps because there are some parents that have put students in that school specifically because they think it'll get them an advantage to getting into places like this. Is that true? It's it's true that people may choose a school for that reason. It's certainly not true that it that it happens. Um, Every every school has a top, middle and bottom of their class. That's true anywhere. And, and someone may have different opportunities at one educational institution over another, but it isn't necessarily the case that um, a student who was pretty much doing the same thing at two different schools would necessarily have the same college outcomes. Now, I think one thing that is different is that independent schools have someone like me who is paid to have college counseling in their title, who doesn't have an overwhelming additional set of responsibilities um, that most public school counselors have and have smaller caseloads. Um, the, the fact that there are um, so many incredible school counselors who manage to do all of the things they need to do on their plates and still be skilled college counselors is, um, is, is amazing to me that there's so many folks in this field that do that so well. Um, you know, within the college counseling realm within independent schools, um, there are many folks who also teach and coach and in boarding schools, they have residential requirements as well. Folks may um, chaperone trips and advise student organizations as well. Um, but at the end of the day, their their main role is this transition, transition to college and, and all that it entails. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I've seen change over the past five, ten years is um, it, it used to be in most independent schools, the quote college process began kind of the midpoint of junior year. Students would take the PSAT fall fall of junior year and maybe even maybe even in sophomore year as well. Um, and there'd be conversation about what that meant and what it was about. And we'll we'll see in January of, of your junior year. 
That's when college counselors were assigned. That's when family meetings happened. Let's clear the seniors away, get all their applications submitted. Um, and then once we get to second semester, then we can start talking to juniors. And, and that's when their process began. And, and increasingly over the last 10 years, and I did this in my last school as well, um, you start to then move that junior family presentation out of January, February of junior year and into fall of junior year so that there's something to keep them occupied, something um, that they can work on and so um, they don't feel as if they're not getting what uh, what they need. There's some kind of teaser, I mm-hmm. guess, for them to know this is this is what you can expect going forward. And I think there are also more schools th- that are doing um, targeted um, ninth and 10th grade student and parent programming right. as well to offer additional support and an increasing number of schools who are assigning college counselors earlier. Um, some cases, you know, if they start with a ninth grade entry point, that happens. Uh, at enrollment of ninth grade. Uh, at my last school, we started doing it uh, over the past several years. We started assigning at the as we sent those sophomore PSAT scores back uh, over, over the holiday because it gave us the opportunity in spring of sophomore year to talk with those rising juniors about curriculum planning, about a standardized test plan, and to be able to just ease some anxieties mm-hmm. that, that you know, absent good information, bad information was going into the vacuum. And mm-hmm. that that was something that I think um, we were lucky to be able to be in a position where the head of school and the board thought that this was also a wise thing. And um, believe me when I said that the only way that we could do it well was to add another staff member. And that's not a luxury a lot of schools have. Right. I mean, and I think a lot of people decry the, 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 the fact that this process is starting earlier and earlier that with the National Association of College Admissions Counseling just released a report as they do annually to talk about sort of state of affairs in, in college admissions. And they showed increases both in early action and early decision, um, both application numbers and enrollment numbers. Do you think it's necessarily a bad thing uh, that the process is happening sooner? And, you know, to the extent that the casual observer would just sort of take a, a look into your window and see that, you you know, you're at the Bishop School, you're having programs for ninth and 10th graders to address this issue, they might say, what are they doing starting this process so soon? But in fact, you're maybe responding to something else that's out there. What we what we started to see was that families thought that meeting with a college counselor equaled starting the college process, and that's something that they wanted. In those meetings with rising sophomores, where we would be talking about curriculum for junior year and mapping out senior year as well, when we would be talking about Uh, a standardized test plan and any type of self-study or paid uh, prep that the student may engage in, it would be rare if I would end up talking about any particular colleges with a family unless they brought it up. But they would leave having felt as if they had started the college process. And so part of it is perception versus reality. Have they started the college process? I, I think they had started having conversations about college. And none of the things that we were talking to them about were things that other individuals in the school hadn't talked to them about Mm -hmm. prior. So the college process at most independent schools really starts the moment, I mean, it's embedded in everything in the curriculum. You know, they're college preparatory schools. People wouldn't be paying tuition for their child to go to one of these places if their goal wasn't that they go to a four-year institution, regardless of their selectivity hopes. But so, so embedded in, really all of those things. In mm-hmm. ninth grade English class, 
is writing that then helps you in the next few years and helps you with college writing. So it's all, I think, a ripple effect mm-hmm. to to going to college. But I think the 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 thing that I see is the spe- student specific college college process that still occurred in junior year. What we were able to gain back that benefited us was being able to um, either talk down a student off the ledge of overreaching in their curricular choices. Um, we were having this, those conversations at a point in the spring um, when, and, and we made this, we did this intentionally. We could have, have flipped them a few different months in the spring. Um, we opted to have those meetings at a point where students were approaching midterms so that um, they were at a stress point when they were making dis- making these decisions uh, about the next year. So they weren't, it wasn't summer and they're very well rested and they think, sure, I can take five AP courses or whatever the highest level in my school is. Um, they would remember, I'm really stressed right now and this is the curriculum that I have and maybe I should take that into account for making these other choices. Um, we would be able to talk them down off of overreaching. We also um, could uh, support and scaffold students who might underreach a bit, um, which in in many schools disproportionately happens to first generation students. It happens to students of color in independent schools, and I think in public schools very much as well. Um, you know, students who uh, knew that they were going to have high need for for financial aid, and so taking any kind of risk wasn't necessarily a uh, um, something that they were comfortable with. We were able to talk to a student who um, was going to stop after the minimum graduation requirement in an area, even if they would benefit just in terms of of keeping doors open and options uh, maximized uh, from taking an extra year of a world language, for example. So, so we were able to have those conversations. We were also able to to counsel some families out of. Um, who had the money, and this was great that they did, but counsels and families out of spending a ridiculous amount of money on test preparation. There was a boot camp, for lack of a better word, that an um, organization in San Diego offered that was five days a week for four or five weeks, and the kids had flashcards, and there's no good learning that was that was happening there. And, and the other piece that I will say as well is that if families are already paying independent school tuition uh, in order to have access to strong counseling, um, then then sometimes they feel that they need to pay more. There may have been a tutor that the child had before. There may have been um, someone who um, helped uh, with organizational skills, and often they feel like they need to they need to pay the, the pickup line at the end of the day. Um, folks get to talking, and all of a sudden they feel like, well, somebody is, is paying for additional support. Maybe we're supposed to do that as well. Um, back to your original question of, isn't that still starting the college process? I think that any time a college counselor gets in front of a group of students or parents, um, that is part of the college process. But I think that what college counselors typically think of as as the college process is the individualized specific work with the student and family on looking at the colleges uh, to which they will apply and consider. And so this, I feel like, can be more laying the groundwork to be able to then engage in that part of the process. Right. And you mentioned tutors and other kinds of extraneous personnel uh, who may be paid for their time to assist uh, these children on their quest uh, for the perfect fit college, however early that may begin. Uh, As you know, I made a, a, a change at the table to a different chair. Yes. The desk 
There's, there's no desk. Really. Big round table with a lazy Susan in the middle. Um, what are we passing around? Knowledge. Ooh. Joy. Oh, okay. Coffee. Yeah, I like it. And, you know, I'm not asking for anybody's sympathy here uh, at all. I mean, I made the decision that I did to go uh, and to become an independent educational consultant. Indeed. Primarily because I, I mean, I wanted to work with kids, you know, and as I think as you alluded earlier, when you have, when you're getting to a certain point in college admissions, you reach this fork in the road, which is, um, I either go in the direction of more kind of grumpy grownups with, yes, more pay, but double the expectations and stress that accompanies something like that and decidedly further away from, you know, the, from, from moving in the direction of students. Or you go, you kind of bounce right. and you go and you do something else, right, if you want to work with kids. Uh, and so, uh, and, I, and I love college-wise and I love the people there, and so it was a, it was a really great opportunity for me. I'm not going to lie, you know, I mean, people haven't been, okay, downright aggressive towards me. Um, but you know, it's not the most enthusiastic welcome sort of, uh, into this new sort of job change for me. Um, what do you attribute that to? Uh, well, I was going to ask you the same thing, you know, what is it that, that, that bugs school counselors so much about the existence of independent educational consultants? I wouldn't say it's the existence. Okay. I think that... Help me feel better about this decision. I I think you made the best decision you could make (laughs) for you because as is true in in schools as well as in in colleges, the higher up the food chain you go, the less and less positive direct contact you have with kids. So I, I, I made the same choice. There is often animus between and among... Uh, school-based counselors and independent educational consultants, and sometimes there are admissions folks that weigh into that, uh, you know, weigh into that fray as well. I uh, am not going to say that all school-based counselors are skilled in in their work, um, but they have a context for the student and the school. And the uh, colleges have determined um, that their role in the process is direct support. There's documents that counselors are responsible for for submitting. There are uh, incredibly talented independent educational consultants, president company included, who um, who do good work and want to focus on kids. Um, there are some, as there are in any industry, <clears throat> who may not necessarily. Um, represent um, themselves in the most positive light. And I think that can tend to kind of um, lend to folks painting with an overly broad brush on an entire area of the table, Mm -hmm. perhaps. Mm -hmm. There are um, folks who charge exorbitant fees and put uh, guarantees of admission to a certain echelon of selectivity of schools into uh, into these guarantees and um, and and some uh, folks do work that could appear to um, really be doing the work for the student either in application completion or essay writing or um, or any number of other things um, there are folks who hang on a shingle to be independent educational consultants that that don't um, necessarily engage in the professional development that would be expected of um, of others. I'm sure there's school counselors that are in a similar position. I'm sure there are college counselors who work in independent schools that don't necessarily engage in, in the amount of professional development that one would hope. Um, but I think that independent educational consultants from one or two individuals, uh, maybe more, 
um, who tend to um, get a, a lot of attention for possibly not the most positive interactions with um, with students and, and with college folks. Um, I think that kind of paints with, uh, again, with a broad brush. I have, um, I have friends who are independent mm-hmm. educational mm-hmm. Some of your best friends. Um, some of my best friends are ACs. But, well, um, it's interesting, I mean, because I, I think that, you know, I understand f- acutely the degree to which the independent edu- educational consultant can become the fly in the ointment, you know, that can potentially undermine the work of the school counselor, where the school counselor, knowing all those things that you mentioned, the context of the school environment, you know, the, the whole child right. since they've, you know, known them since ninth grade or whenever their parents are bothering them for college information. Um, they've, you know, counseled their siblings. You know, they, they know all this stuff. Um, and they have, as you mentioned, started to do the, the real, you know, rubber meets the road college counseling work and come up with a list of schools for the student based on all of these factors, all the context that they have that they can bring to bear on this. Uh, uniquely as a school-based counselor, and then walk in the door. That was Friday. Walk in on Monday. Right. Totally new school list, and say, my quote-unquote friend, right, of the family, right, has suggested right. I consider these instead, and sort of scuttling the work and 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 trampling on that on on all of that sort of hard-earned context that a school counselor might. Um, bring to bear on it. Right. And I'm, I'm sure you can tell that I'm choosing my words very carefully. Yes. Yeah, so by, by virtue of all the pauses between them. And many pauses. <laughs> um, normally I, I would be speaking super fast with the caffeine in the bloodstream, but the, the piece where school context is so, is so important is you likely in the past, you know, month have met with students from how many different, different schools do you think? Oh man. Um, dozen or more and and each of those schools have different opportunities for students and different um, demands uh, just as every student is going to be different and so while looking at an individual school context at some places taking five AP courses in senior year for a gifted student may make perfect sense but without understanding that within that school environment um, you know they may have a limit of three Mm -hmm. but the parent may feel that what they've been told is if you don't take five AP courses your senior year or whatever the school's highest is you aren't going to get into college quickly is that a is that a thing that you're seeing more of at access schools that they're placing a limit on the number of college prep coursework they can take I wouldn't say it's increasing Um, I think I think what's happening more is schools reassessing their relationship with the advanced placement program got it but um, I think that there's any number of, of reasons why a school might place um, uh, place some limits on curriculum. And, and the main thing is to be able to allow students to really um, thrive and engage in the work that they're doing mm-hmm. and not to just make it all list checking sure, uh, sure. In, in, uh, in the attempt to to earn top grades, but to get it back to teaching and learning. So were you saying maybe that um, a, a parent thinks a student might need to take a, you know more of these kinds of courses, the school maybe has placed a limit on it or has other reasons for saying no, um, and they say, well, I'm going to hire somebody who will tell me something different? Well, or even just that, you know, even if the school doesn't have a formal limit, it may not make sense for that student for any variety of reasons. Uh, someone may look at uh, a student's course load and say, well, of course you, you should take this. And well, the student, the student may not have the prerequisite for that course at that school. Mm-hmm. Um, there may be any number of reasons why they can't do it. There may be choices that the family made earlier, um, that the child wants to stay in band and wants to be, 
um, in the orchestra of the fall play and wants to be able to be doing preseason for their winter sport. And those things on top of that course load are a recipe for disaster. But, but without the understanding of that context, without knowing that child's teachers, um, and, and I'm not saying that, that every independent school environment, every school-based counselor knows all of their students that, that well um, and is workshopping with all of their counselees, teachers, and, and colleagues all day long, but, but to be able to, to be in that environment to see um, for this kid and where they've been and where they're going, this doesn't necessarily make sense. Because I can also see a desire from a family to present themselves to an independent educational consultant uh, in only the best light. And, and the context of what grades mean in any different environment. GPA inflation, not necessarily grade inflation, but GPA inflation with places that wait courses, some places don't wait courses, some places have actually grade and GPA deflation right. in how that some places don't have um, traditional letter or numerical grades at all. There's the shift looking at the mastery transcript uh that's that's in the works episode 21 i did i got it's, it's still in my it's still that's been almost two years now though yeah i know i was looking back at that but <laughs> um they've they've done a lot more work now yeah i'm curious about that but i, I mean before we move on what would you know what do you think then to the extent that this is a reality you know that uh families are going to pay the insane tuition right that they're going to pay to go to an and access they're school to go to and an they're going to pay an iec you know, so I, I think it happens, and I think that I think um, I think that there are definitely folks, and I certainly was um, when I was a younger college counselor. I, I certainly think there are folks that feel threatened of what is it that I'm not giving you mm-hmm. that you feel you need to go somewhere else for. And I had times when I would ask families that, or we would do an end of year survey. Um, we also had a hard time getting families what they considered help, mm-hmm. quote unquote, in the process. Um, and, and, you know, there's an increasing number of essay coaches and, um, apparently I was just meeting with a group of, of our member schools in Boston and I've heard there's someone who is touting themselves as an expert on just the activity section and the common application, it's quite a fascinating niche. specialty. Jesus. But again, the fact that that person exists makes you think, do I need this? I scroll through Instagram and I see an ad for something that I never knew existed before, mm-hmm. And of course, I'm tempted to check it out and see, well, maybe I need this. I didn't know it existed before, but now I can't live without it. Mm-hmm. So I think that that is an, um, uh, an opportunity mm-hmm. that folks have if they have uh, the money to be able to make these kinds of well, what's the choices. Be- I mean- but I don't know. I'm not going to begrudge someone making decisions that they feel they need to make on behalf of their kid. I think that... Um, that may also be one of the the reasons. Um, I won't I won't deny that it wasn't something that I thought of as a um, unintended benefit as we started assigning college counselors a year earlier, at uh, when I was at Bishops, um, of um, if we can uh, potentially get to families before they feel like they need to hire someone so they know that they can come to us, which they always could. It was just that someone. <laughs> They felt that they needed to know which of the four of us or mm-hmm. three of us, depending mm-hmm. on the point in time, that they could come to um, to to ask a question. Which one was theirs? Um, whereas if if they had a question about English curriculum, they would have no problem going to the 
English. Anyway, um, I, I think that there is some threat. I think there's also the, the opportunity to build trust and to know that this is my person. I also think there's families that want concierge level service and they want handholding and they want someone to answer their child's text at two in the morning. And I don't think anybody who's working with a large number of students in a school should be beholden to that. I don't think anybody should be doing uh, that. I period. was just going to say, I mean, but, I definitely am not answering any texts at two in the morning. No, but I think there's some folks that hang themselves out as that is the they'll level do. of service that right. they'll offer. And, and, and that is fine. I'm not going to begrudge anyone that. There was a board member at my last school who, who took me aside and said, I want you to know, um, with our older son, he wanted to do it his way. He wanted to work with you um, and, and get everything done. And he didn't want anyone else's um, voice in his work, which was very clear because he didn't want his parents reading his essay until after it had already been submitted. He said, with our younger daughter, the way her ADHD manifests itself, um, we don't want to be constantly fighting with her all year long. We need right. someone to keep her uh, organized and in line on this. And it's not your job to hold her hand the way that we think she'll need her hand holded. And I appreciated that. Mm-hmm. They said there's there's not going to be any judgment calls that get made on um, on final decisions without running it by you. Um it doesn't mean that I got the final say. The family, the student gets the final say always, no matter who family is working with. But um, but to have that um, that opportunity within the context um, of our school and the history and where this young woman was, um, I, I appreciated the honesty. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also had interactions that were much less positive than well, that, where, where yeah. a family would say, well, um, the counselor says the best um, best thing to do is, is apply. Um, to this place, early decision, to not say we need financial aid, and then to write the essay on the um, experience um, that she had building latrines in South America last summer. And all of those things just make me cringe. Right. So given, I mean, I think that that's definitely, you know, the way that a lot of folks feel about this, that there is this sort of taboo, you know, in in most cases almost to sort of admitting that you, you know, have hired somebody like myself when you're going to a school like the ones you represent. And I wonder if there, it wouldn't be better for everybody if all this could kind of come up aboard a little bit more um, when we think about the degree to which this is actually all working in service to the kid ideally and so what i mean what what would be sort of an ideal working relationship in that regard i mean how could how could you know somebody like me and somebody that works for for you know a school represented by your uh, organization sort of best collaborate um towards that end because this is a really big i mean this is like i mean in this community this is a big pain in the ass and i should say we're talking about this right you know really upper crust like you know Landscape. I'm going to shift gears in a second. I promise. I don't know that I have an answer to that because I think that on on the one hand, by virtue of having been hired by an educational institution, school-based counselors have um, have been vetted to uh, and determined by some organization, whether a public school uh, or a district or an independent school or or, mm-hmm. or private school parochial. Um, somebody has vetted them on some level before they, were, before they were hired and determined they have some level of qualification. Um, and there's someone supervising them in that work. Um, contrasted to, um, and I will go with, um, let's say, outlier example here, um, a parent of one of my former students who um, whose three children went through the process were all brilliant and incredibly talented athletes. Um, and might have been legacy at an institution to which one of them ultimately matriculated. That parent um, then 
empty nester decides I can I, I can do this because look at the experiences my three kids had and, mm-hmm. and, and the highly selective places where they went and maybe take an online college counseling class maybe go visit a school go to a, a, a session at a con- professional conference and think I can do this and decide um, to hold themselves out as a as a college counselor mm-hmm. um, without the school context without the broader understanding I'm not saying you have to have worked in selective admissions in order to do this but that certainly helps having seen how an application is reviewed I, I don't think that if that individual starts off thinking I can do this because my three kids went through the process um, that is such a um, small biased sample size to use in determining suitability for a professional field and expertise mm-hmm. in it I don't know if if that person doesn't see all that they still have to learn in order to start working with students and families I don't know that that collaboration is realistic I think that folks like the team that you work with who make professional development such a strong part of the work, folks who have jumped through the hurdles of IECA membership, the Independent Educational Consultants Association, Mm -hmm. um, where they have very um, high benchmarks for um, colleges visited, and I won't get all of the thresholds right, but but all of the things that, that membership in that organization requires, plus strong professional development on its own and conferences and meetings, I, you know, I think for that, for those individuals, I think that, that there is the opportunity for collaboration. But more than anything, I think getting it above board so the student isn't put in the middle, because that increases stress tremendously. There are a number of independent schools that have statements on independent counselors. Some of them say, and I, I don't know that I'm in favor of I know I'm not in favor of this. Some of them say, you are not allowed to work with an independent counselor. Um, I don't know how you get away with that because I think that almost well, and then, it's, a and then defensive, the, it's a defensive posture. And then the rest is to say, and then if we find out that you know you are, then we're done with you. And what does that do? I don't I don't know that 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 makes sense for a family. And if anything, um, you know, it comes across as what are they what are they afraid of? Yes, mm-hmm. but I think I think encouraging transparency above all is so critical because then if a student comes to me and there's some really out of nowhere advice that they're bringing um i know to ask you know where where did this come from did you meet with your your iec over the weekend um and and then if they can say that then then being able to then say hey i just wanted to reach out and and see i know that you're working with so and so um wanted to have a sense of the the context the frame of reference Mm -hmm. that both that we're both working with here and sometimes things get entirely lost in translation right and that's helpful to know but i think having too many people getting into a student and family's head as they navigate this process um, more is not always better. Uh, you know, getting a second opinion is not always the way to right. go. Um, there's some families that I would love for them to go see someone who would tell them exactly what I had just told them. So yeah. maybe they'll believe it if they hear it from two of us. But but I don't know if those people don't necessarily see things the same way or offering different counsel. Um, that's an incredibly difficult position right. for a student and family to be in. And I think, you know, I mean, this isn't unique to independent schools. I think, a lot, you know, sure. counselors everywhere sort of deal with the fact that, that, that there are independent operators out there, various levels of scrupulousness uh, around the process, for sure. Right. Um, no real kind of uniform degree of uh, accreditation. Right. 
absent, you know, something like what IECA can or, or HECA can produce for its members. Right. right. Um, and so, yeah, this, there's, but, you know, this is this capitalist marketplace that we live sure, in. And if sure. people are going to pay, pay somebody money for something, then, then it's just going to be a thing. Um, that said, you know, I think there's a part of me that, you know, if I could step outside of myself right now and, and, and listen to this produced podcast as it comes out, I would, I would probably have turned it off a while ago because, oh man, these are just people talking about the rich people stuff. Right. And like, Jesus Christ, like this is not like planet earth that we're talking about here, right. you know? Um, and I think that if I pulled Axis members, uh, you know, and I said, given the you know choice to go back in time and just kind of reimagine our system of secondary school education would you do it exactly the same way they would probably resoundingly say absolutely not you know that there that there probably oughtn't be tiers of opportunity right based on your ability to pay right um you know i know where your heart is you know you mentioned marie bigham and and, and her work with accept which is now becoming thankfully much more of a, a an institutionalized part of the work that we and do. we're both sitting here two white people wearing black lives matter bracelets as uh, well indeed we are and it matters very much to us indeed. uh and yet you know the 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 groups that we serve uh tend not to sort of fall into the category of Elements of society we wish got the help they need and deserve um, right. on a level that uh, is equal to you know what people who have the ability to pay for it receive. Right. How do you and you know the members of your organization sort of reconcile these two things? Right. You know because this is honestly this is an inner turmoil that I deal with. Sure, serving the area over service. I mean, I got to put food on the table right. uh, for my own family and everything. But yeah, right. I mean, giving a, a, an advantage to the already advantaged. Sure. You know, one of the things that that is so um, challenging isn't the right word, but I'm, I'm struggling with a better one. Uh, you know, interesting about working working in independent schools is there um, having having gone to a public high school, public elementary, all the way through. Um, you know, there's definitely this feeling that these are these elitist bastions of white privilege, and stereotypes exist because they're based in something well founded, and that's that's certainly. Um, Certainly, the case in in independent schools. I think the um, the demographics of independent schools have certainly changed, and there's some of them that are more diverse than some suburban public high schools. Certainly, but that is the reason why, rather than feeling as if um, the way that I can exercise my white guilt is in order, you know, is to go out and do the equivalent of the you know service trip to you know, Fiji or something that kids do, you know, it, it isn't the, um, well, let's, um, let's go and do a program for this local, so this is my condescending voice I'm using right now, let's go and do a program for this local CBO and let's share with them, you know, all these college resources. You know, most CBOs have really talented, knowledgeable folks running them. Those aren't the folks that need assistance and they know their students better. Um, you know, that, that's a place where how can we help connect Fo- you know, other adult with resources um, to be able to help. If help is asked for, how can we then come around to it? How can we then um, maybe develop a grant fund that our members could apply to to be able to put 
some programs in place on the ground that might support students who either don't have access to good counseling, the folks that that aren't affiliated with a CBO and are one of hundreds of students in in their school counselor's caseload potentially. Um, How can we kind of help support those students' organizations groups? And again, amplify the voices of those who aren't necessarily in the positions of privilege because I I don't want to be the person. I don't know what it is like um, to be a student or the counselor of a student um, in um, a rural, in an urban, in a um, Title I school, in a school that is um, 90% or more free or reduced lunch. Um, I, I don't know that environment, but there's someone who does. And so um, how inappropriate and condescending would it be for me to go in and pretend um, that because I work at this independent school, or I work with this organization of independent schools that I know better because this is something that works in my environment. Mm-hmm. There are certainly some principles, I think, of college counseling that that we can all agree with. But in terms of the practicality of decision making, um, students whose families are paying tuition for them to go to school often have the capacity to be able to pay something in tuition for college. That isn't necessarily the case. And so I can't go into a public school environment. I can't go into volunteer at a CBO and have the same frame of reference of those families. I think there's a lot of folks in independent schools that as the economic downturn happened 10 years ago and continued, um, the barbell that existed in so many independent schools of full pay families and full need families and not a whole lot in between really changed in a lot of independent schools where all of a sudden in order to keep some of those families who were formerly full pay within the school, there was a decision made at many independent schools to start to offer need-based financial aid um, to a broader range of families, which then changed the demographics of the schools along the socioeconomic spectrum so that there was a little more in the quote middle, which I use very broadly because you're still talking about folks who are paying for tuition in high school. But, but there was more in the middle, which also means that those are families that didn't used to be in independent schools who now feel that they have need because they are sacrificing in a financial way pretty significantly by their judgment. It's money that they are not putting toward um, a child's college fund savings, but uh, they still want to be able to pay the mortgage on the nice house and keep the two cars and the vacations two or three times a year. And they want to keep the standard of living up, but they feel they have financial need and on paper they're full pay. And so that is a um, it's a subset of families within independent schools that I think college counselors had to um, kind of quickly figure out. Nobody, nobody tells the college counselor, um, oh, by the way, we have totally changed our financial aid awarding model. So you are going to have, quote, middle income families that you've never worked with before. So independent school college counselors had to learn a lot more about need-based aid. And in some ways, I think learned from folks who had been working with these broader, you know, more demographically diverse populations all along. And that's something where I think there's a two-way street in the information sharing where, um, you know, being in Southern California, and this certainly isn't limited to, to Southern California, but typically folks who are who are in border, uh, you know, border regions um, end up working with students um, who either um, are undocumented, have parents or guardians who are undocumented, or have um, DACA status, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And, and that's something that I certainly 
reached out to folks in um, public schools and areas that I know that they had worked with students in these circumstances before in order to help me and kept the line of communication open so that if there was a question about a student applying to a highly selective school that they hadn't had a successful applicant to that school in many years, um, that's an incredibly elitist skill set to have. But um, it's certainly something that I worked with all the time. So the danger of being in any school setting is that you tend to get blinders on. And if you don't get out, if you don't go to you know, counselor breakfast, professional conferences, college fly-ins, um, you know, visiting campuses in your area, whatever it is, um, you tend to forget that there are school environments that are vastly different from your own. And that's one of the places, even within AXIS, that I really appreciate that there are um, schools that are so different from each other. And not just day versus boarding schools, um, but, you know, day schools in rural areas and day schools up and down the west side here in New York, and um, schools that actually are incredibly well-funded so that they can be um, you know, in a position to um, award grants to almost all the students who, who enroll, who have significant financial need. Schools who are able to support students um, you know, to and through college in some ways. And and some where the college counselors really struggle um, with what's allocated in their budget to pay membership to another uh, organization, let alone attend any of its programs. So mm-hmm. I think that um, I think that that's another place where we need to keep the conversations around all the seats at that table going. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if there are public school counselors who feel about people like me um, the way that you indicated that... Um, people like me, folks in in public schools and in independent schools feel about IECs mm-hmm. many times um, because I'm, I wasn't dealing with an 800 plus student caseload and right. having to do IEP and 504 plans and, um, you know, doing scheduling and the bus line well, let's put and some, all of those let's things. Let's put some numbers to this because this is one of the things that came out in the aforementioned NACAC State sure. of College Admissions and they said that the, um, the average public school counselor was responsible for 470 students on average. And of course that jumps a lot depending on the state like California where it's double that maybe. 33% of public schools reported employing at least one counselor full or part-time whose exclusive responsibility was, was college, college counseling, right. whereas 60%, it's 68% for private schools. Um, and then mentioned that- And pro- I think, I think it, apologies for interrupting, when, when that said private schools, I think they are also um, lumping in um, uh, church-based mm-hmm. schools and, and parochial schools, probably many of whom um, still operate by necessity and funding on kind of right. a more generalist school counselor model. Right. Um, and then the time available for college counseling, public school counselors spent 21% of their time on post-secondary counseling, whereas private school counterparts spent 47% of their time on college counseling. So there's definitely this sort of disparate effect right. as you would imagine right. would be the case um and uh yeah i mean this is this is an unequal system of education that we have um from you know universal pre-k being a brand new thing in new york city right. only a couple of years ago to um you know who gets into college right and uh you know i think that in general we could all stand to be a little bit more like same team same team um I think NACAC is a great place where that can kind of come together 
uh, and coalesce a little bit. Um, but it is hard, I think, to get past a lot of, you know, whatever the feelings that people have about each other's professions right. and who they serve to sort of rec- have that, that, that degree of recognition about same team. Um, and I think that it's thanks to, you know, the work of people like Marie in Accept, which let's see, it stands for Admissions Community, Cultivating Equity and Peace Today. Indeed. Um, I'd write that down so I would remember. Um, I think sort of tying that together uh, to understand that this is all, this affects all of us. It's interesting and sort of mission critical to all of us, at least as human beings that work in this position, whether, you know, it is the exact job description of ours or not. I always thought that our field was fascinating from the point, and, and I, I've never worked in any other field. I don't know how to do anything else, but but it occurs to me. I was the me, assistant manager of the 311 call center in Rochester, New York for uh, about two years. Bless you. Yeah. If you, so I have worked is in Is that the non-emergency field, police right. line? Yes, wow. it is. Wow. Dead squirrel collection pothole uh reporting so you do have other skills that's fascinating well i did i think you know like a muscle just if you don't use it you know your ability to respond to it sure dead squirrel pickup request kind of goes away but when i explain going to going to NACAC, let's say (laughs) Mm -hmm. um which first they're all the affiliate ACACs, and so then i have family members who call it the aflac conference but um (laughs) not a i just think not a sponsored not a sponsored ad what were they? Were the they aliens, there? that was all they said was ack, ack, ack. Oh, did ack. they? Yeah. Well, there you go. They, were, right. they were very prescient in mm-hmm. their... Uh, their <laughs> um, but, but it's interesting because we have so many seat holders uh, and stakeholders in this organization that, that when I mentioned to someone once, not even thinking about it years ago, that, um, that deans and directors, admissions officers, and school counselors, um, again, when we were still in that oppositional mindset, of um, opposite sides of the desk, someone saying, well, isn't that, isn't that a conflict of interest? Are you all going to the same conference or are you just asking them for, you know, to admit kids and they're just asking you to send them full pay kids? Is that, is that just how that goes? And I thought, well, well no, we all know each other and work together. And some of us used to work in admissions and some, you know, folks kind of bounce around and all, but it occurred to me that other, other professional conferences are not like that. Um, San Diego is, is, always hosting some conference all the time. Somebody who's not me is always being welcomed to San Diego whenever I get to baggage claim. And so, you know, thinking about the, um, you know, American Academy of Neuroscience or whatever it is that was just in San Diego not too long ago, you have neuroscientists and you have vendors and exhibitors who are paying to sell them things. Um, But what's the other, what's the other side of that field? What are the other seats at that table? And I don't, I don't know. And I feel like the fact that we do all come together, um, as fraught as sometimes those conversations may be, thank goodness that's the way that it is. Because if we did all have our professional development apart and then had to figure out a way to come together, I don't know that we'd be able to do it again, especially as um, competitive isn't the right word, but but the, the way that the field has come and as many times as folks have to kind of plant their flag and say, this is the thing that I stand for, it, I'm, I'm grateful we have that opportunity to come together. I'm very grateful for NACAC. And I feel that, you know, that's the umbrella under which all of these other organizations can, can come together. I'm not saying it's NACAC's responsibility to bring us together, but I think that, that the fact that we already have that um, kind of common organization 
Well, it's also expensive, you know, to go to NACAC and be a part of the conference, right? And to do all that sort of stuff. Like, do, and, and there are a lot of school conferences that don't It is, but dramatically have... less expensive than so many other professional conferences. The neuroscience conference? The neuroscience. Well, and other, other conferences that I've started attending in my yeah. new role. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I think that my point, though, being that I think one of the things that's nice. That's an that, access piece, too. That we can do. Exactly, right? right. Is, is to be able to provide, you know, to the extent that we trade on information, more of it, more of high quality information right and to put it out there all in the interest of same team you know i think that we are doing a better job in all of our fields to the extent that we can share what we know and help make sure that we keep our eye on the prize which is help kids help kids become better people help people help help them get into college and become productive and happy citizens and i think to a point that we were talking about some time ago help help students and families, no matter what school they attend, see um, that despite the, what they may read or click on, um, there are you know over 3,000 four-year colleges out there, and it isn't just um, 10 to 50 of the most highly selective schools that they may happen to, um, to see mentioned in national or regional media. So, so to be able to have the opportunity to have some of those connections and opportunities. I think that, um, you know, how can we continue to come together to communicate those messages? How can we um, force feed the vegetables to to the folks that we feel need it um, and not have them say, that is all well and good, but we wouldn't be paying tuition here. We wouldn't have our child, we wouldn't be paying the tax base for this area. Um, if our child was, inter- you know, if we were interested in a college that we've never heard of. Um, and, and sometimes those conversations go nowhere. And every now and then you can say, I hear you, but if I want an expert um, in money management, I am going to come to you just as when you want expertise in college counseling. Mm-hmm. Um, I am here and you're already paying for me. Right. Um, I think there's a level of confidence in your knowledge and skills that you need to have in order to pull that off. Um, but I think that being able to um, talk to families about return on investment, which 15 years ago I wasn't doing, I would maybe talk to our board, but I wasn't mentioning it in family meetings, that part of the return on investment that you're getting on the education is the fact that we're going to make this process about your kid and not about trying to make them the square peg in the round hole or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to try to find the place that's best for them so that they can be successful and thrive and move on to the next steps in their life. And I think that should be what we're all working toward. Amen, sister. I could talk to you all day, but I think they're going to kick us out of this room here Probably in so. this uh, 15th so. floor WeWork conference room. Um, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. And I hope to continue to stay in touch with you about all this stuff per use. Thank you. All right, there you have it. Uh, If you're interested in working at a school that belongs to Emmy's organization, you can head to the website at accessnet.org and click on Read More right there under Career Opportunities. It's a fantastic organization under obviously fantastic leadership. And they got some some jobs there uh, for the the applying. Of course, as we both addressed in the conversation, we're talking generally about a pretty privileged subset of students, those who have the money to have access member counselors on staff to help them specifically apply to college or to contract my services. And I'm not going to lie that that's a part of of my job that kind of bugs me the most. And I'm not going to wrap myself in the uh, protective cloak of, but I do pro bono work because look, it is is what it is. 
Okay, I mean, people have questions for me about what I do, I'd be happy to talk about it. But I'm really proud of what I do, and I know that uh, Emmy is doing good work as well, obviously, to inform and lead the constituents of Access to help all of their students become better people and to push back against families' assessments of continuing the legacy of prestige as that which holds the greatest value to them and to work hard to open previously un- or disregarded college and experiential doors to as many kids as they can. Not to mention to continue to work as Emmy and many, many Access members do to provide all of the support that they possibly can to initiatives of access, equity, and inclusion. I know I work hard here in this space to promote and amplify the voices of people who are doing that good work, and I hope you'll stay tuned over the coming weeks because I've got some more of those voices on deck for y'all, including, hey, episode 30 is going to be the next one. It's a big one for me, major milestone. So uh, tune in uh, shortly for that. Per usual, if you have any thoughts on this or any other random thing, then uh, please share it with me by sending me a note at crushpod at gmail.com or Twitter at crushpod. Uh, I'm there, involved in the online conversation. I am not, as they say, extremely online, but I, I am online. So uh, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to this one. I appreciate it. And uh, spread love out there. Bye-bye.